Start in T minus ten seconds. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. We have ignition. Ahoy, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unconstitutional Awakening. This evening, uh, Neptune and Bandit have joined me, and we've uh, we've brought on Keith Thompson. I'm not sure if you're uh, if you're familiar with Keith Thompson, but he is the author of Angels and Aliens, UFOs and the Mythical Imag- Mythic Imagination, and he's actually even working on a sequel to that book that he's uh, he said he's going to be having out hopefully by next fall, and and. You know, he's, he, man, he is, we've been having this conversation before we even got started. And, you know, he's just, I I love the way he views these things. You know, like he doesn't seem to, he's not coming on here telling me he's got all the answers for, you know, you know, what UFOs are, this, that, and the other. He's, he's just asking good questions. And that's the kind of stuff I like is people that ask good questions. Cause you know, I'm into, I'm into good question asking. Like when it comes to this kind of stuff, even, even I have my questions on the situation. Like I don't, I've, I've seen some things that I can't discredit and I believe there's other people in this world that have seen some things that discredit. So, so I guess just to kick it off, Keith, how, how are you doing this evening, bud? I am doing very well. I'm doing very well. It's a pleasure. You know, I got your invitation out of the blue. And when I first looked at it, I thought it said unconditional awakening <laughs> rather than unconstitutional. Now you, you may know the phrase unconditional awakening is kind of a spiritual it's a, it's a catchphrase from a certain kind of um, spiritual approach, sometimes called non-duality. And uh, anyway, it's a, it's a kind of a popular thing these days. I go, oh, here's somebody with a podcast called Unconditional Awakening. They're going to want me to talk about spirituality. And I said, no, no, that's uncon- unconstitutional awakening. And I thought, I want to do that because I'm actually, uh, if we went down the political path, you'd find me a big believer that the Constitution uh, was written to make sense. I'm a, I'm a constitutionalist, to be sure. So okay. when you call yourself unconstitutional, I love it. I just love the spirit of that. It says, let's break the boxes. Let's, let's uh, climb the fences. Let's go where nobody else has gone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and in, a, in a sense, that's kind of the way, the way we were looking at it. Like, you know, I mean, sure, all of us believe in the rights that, you know, that that, that, that piece of paper actually put into words. But like I'm the kind of person that believe you're, believes you're born with those rights. Oh. Like anywhere on this planet, you know, you're born with those rights. And it's governments that kind of use paperwork to try to take those things away from you, you know, worldwide, not just, 
you know, I'm, I'm, but I didn't even really want to get into a government spill this evening. That's why I was. Well, we, don't, like, we, we don't have to. I wanted it. to. I wanted to talk to the to the fella that's out here trying to <clears throat> trying to bring perspective and information from you know people's alien encounters and such. And so I guess I guess for folks that aren't familiar out there, like what 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 brought you into you know UFOs. Yeah. Well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell that story. I, I, I'll tell right up, right up front. I did not have my own experience. I certainly have had uh, experiences I call paranormal. When I say certainly, I don't I mean it's not, not absolutely certain, but I've had experiences that tell me uh, that we live in a world that is uh, larger and more varied with more dimensions than are widely acknowledged by our science. But here's how I got into UFOs. I was uh, in elementary school. And it was my turn to do what, what was called a current events report, right? I don't know if you, if you actually did that, but it was, uh, we'd take turns and each student would, would track some story in the news and bring it to class and sort of be a newsman or newswoman. And at that time, there was, uh, I was living in, grew up in Northwest Ohio, Midwest, and in neighboring Michigan, there was a UFO case near uh, Hillsdale, Michigan. Maybe it was Hillsdale College. But the point is, it was a, it was a it was sort of a classic, uh, in this case, multi-day, multiple days of lights and strange uh, craft-like stuff. It was my first exposure to this. And the national news every night led with uh, Walter Cronkite of CBS News, right off the top saying, and we return again tonight to Hillsdale, Michigan, with the continuing uncertainty about the unidentified flying object. We go to Bob Schieffer on site. Bob, what have you got? And so I'm, you know, I'm a young kid. And I'm going, wow, there's something in the sky that people can't, re can't identify. And there's a lot of debate about it. It fascinated me. I've always been interested in you know, current events. I grew up in a family where we talked about stuff. So long story short, I, I gave this report in my class. And what made it fascinating, this particular case, you may have heard about this one because it was from this particular UFO case that a particular catchphrase was first used. There was a, an Air Force consultant named J. Allen Hynek, H-Y-N-E-K. Now, right. Allen Hynek was a remarkable man who was an astronomer who uh, was hired by the, uh, brought in by the Air Force to, to be the consultant to investigate and explain. It took him a long time before he realized that what they meant by explain and investigate was explain away. His unspoken assignment was explain these away, calm people down, tell them there's nothing to worry about. Well, they didn't quite say it that way because he had too much integrity to sign on to something like that. But in any case, he went to the site, uh, talked to witnesses like a good researcher would, and then he held a news conference, and it was covered by all the national press where everyone seemed to be in black and white because we didn't have color TV yet. And so he steps up to the microphone, and he uses a phrase that he instantly regretted. He said, well, I can't explain all of it, but in, at least in a couple of the cases, the ones down there near the marsh, it could have been swamp gas. Well, by the way, there is such a thing called swamp gas in swamps. A uh, gas rises. It can break out into colors. 
and there are lights, luminous. It's a, it's a natural phenomenon. It has to do with the rotting of vegetation. Sure. So, but nevertheless, a, a very, very uh, vigorous case, a very robust case, seemed to have suddenly been reduced to nothing but swamp gas. And so <laughs> that isn't what he said. He didn't explain all of it away, but that's how it was heard. So the reporters ran to their telephones, put in their dimes to the payphones in those days, called their bureaus and said, the Air Force says it's all just swamp gas. It led to a complete uh, angry response from the people of the area who said, well, we may be from rural Michigan, but we're not complete rubes. We know what swamp gas is, and you big guys from the city come in and make fun of us like this. And I thought, this story is too good to be true. So sure. I, told, I told the story. And I remember during the question and answer period in my class, I'm a 12-year-old kid. So one of my 12-year-old uh, fellow students said, well, Keith, you don't believe the story. So you think it was aliens? And that was the first time I realized that question seemed like a disconnect. I didn't know what it was. That wasn't the point. Yeah. My point was, in terms of this story, swamp gas was not a good, a good account. And in sure. fact, it, it, it became for me the first, you could call it a paradigm. It was the paradigm case for me. The first time I realized there tends to be a dismissal of these cases. The Air Force and the military said, you know, they come in and say, you know, everything's fine. Uh, go back home, people. <laughs> uh, crowd control. And, I, you know, there's different explanations for why that is. But in any case, that's when I realized there's this double response. The people report one thing, and then the, official, the agents of official culture come in and say, no, you didn't. You didn't see that. That didn't happen. And my thesis eventually became, wow, in the space between what people report and the response to what people report, in the middle of that is where this thing lives. It creates a symbolic undercurrent, and these stories do not go away simply sure. because they're debunked. They live in the culture. They take on symbolic implications. They become very, very symbolically uh, laden. Uh, people develop wild explanations because they're not getting the truth. So, you know, with any time we're not given the truth uh, about what happens in government, uh, you know, the old saying, where there's a void, um, uh, doubt will fill that void. Sure. Suspicion grows in a void. So that's what's happened with the UFO phenomenon. So let me just summarize by saying that was my first introduction to the yeah. controversy, including my fellow students. said, well, that must mean you think they're from outer space. I said, no. And you know what? Let me, let me conclude this story in this way. My teacher, a woman named Mrs. Lowry, Gloria Lowry, she kind of stood up and she said, wait a minute. What Keith is saying, and I go, okay, let's see, what, let's see what she says Keith is saying. She says, what Keith is saying is it's important to keep an open mind. He didn't, Keith doesn't know what they are. He didn't know what they saw. But he said, you know, he, she's, Keith said, keep, follow the evidence wherever it leads. And then she said to me, I'll never forget, she called me Mr. Thompson. She said, Mr. Thompson, that was quite a good report. You've got the makings of a, of a, of a reporter. 
or a, a scientist or even a detective. Good work. I can't tell you, you know, there are those times we all have, we all have experiences with teachers where we, where we didn't get affirmed, right? You know, we right. all have somebody who said, sit down and shut up. You're not, you're not worth listening to. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody has that. But there's also those experiences we have where a teacher will see you and recognize you. And I have to say, at 12, at 12 years old, it didn't hurt me to hear, Mr. Thompson, you've got the makings of a good reporter, a good scientist, a good sure. detective, because you're following the evidence. That was exactly what a young person needs to hear. And Absolutely. so I continued over the years to pay attention. I continued to track the UFO phenomenon. And long story short, I ended up writing a book called Angels and Aliens um, because I, I really came to see that uh, contrary to the idea that this all started in 1947, certainly something began and picked up steam around 1947. But these, these uh, experiences have been happening really for millennia. Well, so I'm, we're looking at something that human beings have a long-term relationship with this other world, otherworldly stuff. So that's why I, I called it angels and aliens. Um, sure. Because I think they're two different frames of reference for the unknown that this is. That, that's, actually, <clears throat> that's actually a great way to split it up. Like that, you know, because, you, you know, you got a lot of people out here that are, you know, I guess religious based and they call it one thing. And I, I, I really think in a lot of cases, people are kind of talking about the same thing. They just don't really know how to decipher it. I guess they're from where they come from is what they conclude it being, whether it be an, al an alien, whether it be an angel, whether it be a demon, whether it be, you know, an interdimensional being that right. is standing right beside you right now. You know, it's, I think, I think at the end of the day, in a sense, they're all kind of the same thing, just, you know, different forms, different ways. Again, I don't, I don't know myself either. This is just kind of speculation, which I, which I like that you, you like to do there. And, and in fact, I heard you mentioning 1947 and I'm not sure how many people down here in, in the group, or I know you would know, but like people listening and such and watching that would know that June 24th of this year marks the 75th anniversary of the legendary UFO sighting near Mount Rainer by Kenneth Arnold. Yeah, let and, me tell about that story. In fact, I'm going to read, I'm in the process of writing a new book. Yeah. Uh, a, uh, I, don't, I won't, I won't quite, I, yeah, I'm, I put, the I put the phenomenon aside when I finished Angels and Aliens more than two decades ago. And I kind of got away, <laughs> I tell people I, I got away unscathed by the UFO phenomenon, meaning uh, I, I notice a lot of people who are long-term investigators of this phenomenon, they don't do very well <laughs> because the um, uncertainty and the complexity and in, frankly, the darkness, this has a dark, the, the a UFO phenomenon has a dark side to it, so I can understand. And by the way, we'll bring in your your fellow uh, hosts at some point, so that I'm not talking full time. But uh, many people, you did mention demons. Uh, there are people who do look at this. You know, you know, traditional Christians and other traditional religious people say, "Ah, that these that this is the, the the demons taking a new form." So it is a charged area. So what's my point? Um, Oh, so let me tell, let me, so I'm writing a sequel. Let me, let me uh, just write a, a, read a short uh, intro to who Kenneth Arnold was and why he matters and how I'm going to begin my book. The name of my chapter is called What Ken Arnold Really Saw and Why It Matters. Everything starts with Ken Arnold. 
If you know nothing else about the history of the UFO phenomenon, you might recognize his name from pop culture. The experienced private pilot who in 1947 witnessed things moving through the sky in formation unlike anything he'd ever observed, at speeds he couldn't explain, who then told the world what he saw and promptly got misquoted by the press. The phrase flying saucer will forever be linked with Ken Arnold. His sighting is at the heart of the creation myth of the modern UFO phenomenon. A creation myth is a narrative of how the world begins and how people come to inhabit it. For example, I'm just going to pause here and say in our culture, in our scientific culture, how did the world begin? With a big bang. With a t and that's the official story. We can disagree about whether it's accurate. Did the world begin with a small minuscule pinpoint, smaller than a pinpoint, and then continue to expand into this? I don't know. There's doubt about that story. Uh, it also accounts for some of the facts, but it's the creation story. That's what matters. It's the official story of how things came to be. So though in popular practice, the term myth often refers to false or fanciful happenings, myths give narrative expression to what is experienced as a fundamental reality. As they describe and account for the ordering of the cosmos, creation myths speak to questions of profound importance to the society that shares them. They give expression to its worldview and establish a framework for the self-understanding of the culture and, and the individual in a universal context. So in that sense, the sighting by Ken Arnold was the modern UFO phenomenon's creation story. Okay, so let me, let me skip ahead. And uh, it, was the, it was one of those eternal beginnings because when you spend time at a UFO conference or you talk to someone like me, they'll say, you know, this all begins with Ken Arnold. This all begins with Ken Arnold, 1947. It was the first sighting, you know. It becomes the historical touch, touchstone for historians. So I'm willing to say that's true. But here's the thing. They got the story wrong. Now, let me tell you how and why it matters. I'll continue reading. On June 24, 1947, uh, so what Ken Arnold was doing, he was a Boise, Idaho private pilot uh, for, uh, for not, that's not how he earned his living. He's a businessman who was also a private pilot, deputy sheriff, uh, who was out one day on a flight. What he was doing was trying to find a downed marine aircraft because there was a $5,000 reward for this crash. They wanted to locate it and get the bodies and, you know, find and, 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 and finish it all up. $5,000 in 1947 wasn't chump change. So he took his private plane. He was flying over Mount Rainier looking for uh, a downed airplane. He hoped maybe you'll see a reflection on the ground. You know, it would not be a happy, happy ending. But they already knew the plane had disappeared. Well, he, what he saw was something else. And as the Associated Press story of Arnold's sighting of, quote, nine bright saucer-like objects flying at incredible speed at 10,000 feet percolated through the collective psyche, the old times drew close. It's like a traditional story as he brought this story forward. Uh, so uh, so here's, here's what's significant. Uh, it was reported that he saw nine objects shaped like saucers. He didn't say that. He said he saw nine objects skipping like saucers. 
He said they were actually shaped like stingrays. So uh, what, what happened was the UFO story got started. The press said that Kenneth Arnold said he saw flying saucers. Therefore, the assumption was that they were technological, mechanical craft. So flash forward over 20 years later, his daughter, Kim Arnold, who became the kind of family historian after her father died, she felt she had an obligation to come forward and tell that this story was never told right. She wanted to tell what her father really saw. So she told a journalist named Paula Harris the following, quote, my father was perplexed and confused about everybody's concept of aliens visiting from other planets, that type of thing. What my father saw were objects that pulsated with blue-white light from the center of their surfaces, similar to the rhythm and beating of our own human hearts. Now, just stop right there. He saw nine objects pulsating with blue-white light from the center of their surfaces, similar to the rhythm and beating of our own human hearts. My father believed they were alive, absolutely, capable of changing their density rather than anything made out of nuts and bolts. He felt they were not mechanical in any sense at all. That's the end of the quote. Now, here's another quote. She says, no less remarkably, Kim Arnold said her dad believed, and when I say her dad believed, her dad came to believe in the aftermath of this experience that UFOs come from a larger dimensional world, quote, the world we go to when we die. She revealed, now that's another, wow, that didn't get told. Right there, it links the story not so much to extraterrestrials, but to larger questions of what is the human destiny? What is the bridge between living and dying? This takes us into esoteric subjects. It takes us into the areas of deep mythology and spirituality. It doesn't mean that there might not be saucers from outer space. That's not to dismiss the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but it's to say that the founding myth of UFOs was based on something that he did not see. And then one more piece, and I'll drop this, a part that she also didn't tell, and he didn't tell either, and I'll tell in a moment why he didn't tell it. He went home that night. He flew back to Boise after meeting with reporters, because the word spread. He, he landed, by the way, after seeing these, he landed at one private airport, and he went, went inside and said, has anybody else seen anything like this? They said, like what? He described it. Well, you can imagine the eyebrows raising. Uh, they wanted to know if he'd been drinking. <laughs> but they knew that Ken Arnold was a respectable, respectable, respectable guy. By the way, he didn't say he saw nine objects beating like human heartbeats. He said he saw nine objects skipping like saucers, skipping like saucers, undulating. And they were shaped like stingrays. Well, the phrase flying stingrays didn't take, take hold. Flying saucers took hold. People began to look for mechanical objects in the sky. But so here's the part that he didn't tell for a long time because it was already incredible enough. He became the butt of jokes nationally because he reported saucer-like movement of objects in the sky. So what he didn't tell was when he went home that night in his home in Boise, 
landed his plane and drove home and the phone is ringing off the hook. Everybody in the world wants to talk with Kenneth Arnold at this point. In his home that night, there were orbs, O-R-B-S, orbs of light, red, blue, green, balls of light from the size of a hard ball to a soft ball floating around the house. Now, right there, First of all, you've got a response. The debunkers will say, well, that proves it's all nonsense. This is all crazy spiritual nonsense. But what it actually points to, this phenomenon had somehow linked to Ken Arnold. He brought it home in some sense. So this is a phenomenon then that doesn't have just time-space boundaries like here and there. He, and by the way, I'll tell you one more detail. He said... What caught his attention when he was in the airplane was a reflection of light that was not, it was not, it was far brighter than the sun shining off the objects into his cockpit. The light from the objects was so luminous that he felt it was as bright as what he described as a welder's torch, the arc of a welder's torch. Well, I'll just summarize this by saying luminosity is something that is widely reported in many spiritual traditions, sure. in many paranormal traditions, many paranormal experiences, experiences of light. The Bible, for that matter, is filled with, with light. Let there be light. So the presence of light is very often part of esoteric spiritual awakenings. The near-death experience, for example, very often the great brilliant white light that people see before they come back. So it's very interesting. This is what I'm going to be describing. The creation myth of UFOs over Mount Rainier led to the belief that what he had seen was flying saucers from outer space. That isn't what he said he saw. Yeah. What he saw was something far more consistent with, well, what do you call it? A revelatory phenomena of various kinds. So anyway, that's, that's a kind of a, gives you some sense of the bridge I'm trying to make. Yeah. Uh, keeping the, the, the questions open about all this. And by the way, the, what Kenneth Arnold really did see, uh, what took him you know, a couple of decades to, to tell his own daughter and for her to come forward with, that's actually quite consistent. People don't always see classic flying saucers. They see apparitions that are sometimes saucer-like, right. but they're sometimes just balls of light. Sometimes they're shaped like cigars. Sometimes they're shaped like triangles. So this thing is far more variable than, and, and far more consistent with paranormal phenomena in general. And when you introduce the paranormal dimension of telepathy, clairvoyance, yeah. then things are getting wild and wild. Sure. No, no. I mean, and, and you know, I mean, I, I, can, I can definitely, I will vouch for everybody here. I'm pretty sure we all got, you know, our different interests in like UFO stuff is stuff we, we check out. We may not, I think we've all got a little bit different views, but we, there's definitely something I think if you look back on. in history, I mean, if you look back in history, I think the most consistent thing that is recorded is uh, a ball of light, not a disc or anything like that. I think it's mainly recorded um, as balls of light from the sky. If you look that's at, I mean, that, that's yeah, historically, uh, worldwide, um, it, it's a, a ball of light. 
I don't know when the whole disc saucer thing came into play. I don't know if that's Holly. I don't know if that's due to like Hollywood. Well, let me let me let me tell you. There's a funny little detail there. Uh, I've come to the conclusion. Yeah, I believe Hollywood is part of what uh, uh, has helped shape this. The only major alien invasion uh, broadcast that had happened was uh, you're probably familiar with Orson <laughs> yes. Welles' War of the yeah. World. That was yeah. seven or eight years sooner earlier than Arnold. That was a radio broadcast, which, as you know, was a it caused it, panic. It caused panic. It was presented as a broadcast. We interrupt this. We interrupt our musical presentation tonight. That was Orson Welles himself reading the short story of of H.G. Wells. I don't know if he was a relative. I don't think so. In any case, uh, it was widely perceived to be accurate. So people listened to this thinking, oh, no. Well, it was a, a, a saucer had landed. A craft had landed. Aliens had come out. Uh, they were uh, sending flames and destroying entire neighborhoods. So the idea that something would be coming from the sky after World War II was in the national psyche. It, so there, we were primed for it. But you're right. It, uh, there's a curious way in which this phenomenon, uh, I believe it is, a, uh, it is an intelligence, and I frankly think it has a precognitive dimension. And I think that in some sense, it is in touch with what we believe about it, and it presents itself in forms that we can believe that are close enough to our own technology. And, and, uh, the Christians got angels. You could say, you could say, I'm not going to be definitive about this, but if this is a long-term phenomenon, then Christian cultures got angels. Islamic cultures got jinn, J-I-N-N. That is the mm -hmm. term for their paraphysical, subtle material beings. Uh, the, literature of shamanism, you know, the shamans, the tribal medicine yeah. figures interact with beings sure. of various kind. So what do we get? We are a technological culture. We no longer believe in aliens. Excuse me, we no longer believe in angels, but we get aliens from outer space. That's not to say, no people say, oh, Thompson says it's not extraterrestrial. We don't hmm. know whether it is. How much of it might be extraterrestrial? Or interdimensional. Or interdimensional. Yeah. And like that's to, the mm -hmm. question. I, I like to believe in the interdimensional a little more because physics kind of, you know, has kind of done a very good job at proving that there, you know, there's definitely, you know, vib we're vibration slowed down. There's vibration all around us. And, you know, there's, there's definitely dimensions that our eyes can't perceive in these frequencies and stuff in between us. And so... You know, I, I, I really believe there could be other, you know, angels, demons, whatever you want to call them, even right here with us, sitting beside us that we can't see at this frequency, but, you know, maybe, you know, at a certain frequency, they can see us. You know, I, I seen somebody explain it really good one time. A shadow is a two-dimensional version of yourself. Mm -hmm. So would there, would you not be a shadow since you're a three-dimensional thing would you not be you're a shadow of a four-dimensional being and so on you know and it just right yeah. and it keeps going and so you know like i i've you know i've always speculated there's other things i've i've had 
paranormal experiences, I, I, I guess you could call them, from an, an array of things, from seeing things in the sky, from from seeing seeing ghosts and stuff. And these are things that I perceived myself. And, you know, I don't I don't care what anybody thinks about me when I tell them about them. I, I think it's a really cool story to share when I share them around and stuff like that. And and I I, I like to hear other people share their stories, too. I imagine you're out here investigating all kinds of things. So you probably come across stories that not even a lot of people have ever even heard of, you know, out here digging around for alien abductions and sightings and stuff like that. I mean, that, that just, you, you, not many people I can guess would even have begun to even think of Arnold, you know, Mr. Arnold or whatever you were just going through the spill about. So, I mean, well, I'm if sure they've heard about him, they've heard, Oh, he's the guy who first saw the flying saucers right, right there. It's not accurate, but it became accurate. Yeah. It became the mythology. A creation myth doesn't have to be accurate. Um, the Big Bang may turn out not to be accurate, but it is taken to be accurate. Sure. By the way, if it began in time, what, what preceded the Big Bang? And this is the, the question, you know, if Big Bang was how it all began, uh, did time and space begin with that too? What, be, what, 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 what was the itch that that scratched? Even, what was the itch that the Big Bang scratched? Even, even though it's, you know, it's controversial to a lot of people and I have my digressions against it, CERN has um, some, some recent collider shots and stuff at CERN have kind of disproven the Big Bang in the sense that um, there is no, everything is at a super position, yep. like a super pause position until it is viewed. Like it, it has to be viewed to exist. And yes. Yeah, well, that's right. I, oh, that's, you know, you're dealing. In fact, I am going to try to delve into that. I'm going to be, I'm going to be dealing with the physics, the quantum mechanics and yeah. the, because I've got to, you got to get down into that. The thing is I want to make it intelligible. The problem with quantum physics, I'm, and I know this myself, I'm not a quantum physics person. Sure. So I know I don't understand it easily myself. But uh, the non-local effects uh, of phenomena and waves and particles. So I've got to educate myself, but I know that that is relevant. It, it undercuts a lot of our assumptions about the material world and, and the, nat the, the, the importance of consciousness is crucial. It, sure. you know, it's, the, it's the one, what, what is the one given, the one piece of data that is that is immediately given with existence awareness we wake up each morning we don't have to prove consciousness how does the world create consciousness consciousness just is so we've got to we live in a world you mentioned cern there's a philosopher named bernardo kastrup k-a-s-t-r-u-p from the netherlands who's really doing some important work right now arguing that uh, a case can be made that the world as we know it is a mental phenomenon, that all of the world is consciousness. And people say, well, where, what do you get? Where do you come up? How do we get the, the material world? Well, I mean, these are larger questions, but they're all implied. I, I think the phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon is here to knock on our door. It's calling us to ask larger questions about what it means to be in this world. So in that sense, I'm taking a big, a big look at all of this and I will say one more thing. Uh, one thing I'm really enjoying looking at is the phenomenon of the debunker. Now, the debunker presents himself as a skeptic. 
He wants evidence. Okay, listen, by the way, you don't, I, I'm a skeptic. I don't think skepticism is a separate... They're good category. for the cause, though. Debunkers are good for the cause. To have somebody on the opposite side questioning every move you make, it's good for the cause, you know? It causes okay, I, you to think harder, study harder, present better evidence. Well, I'm making a distinction. I, I, agree, I agree with you, but the difference I'm making is between a skeptic that says, I want hard, I've got hard questions to ask here. I'm asking hard questions, too. I sound like, okay, I, I, I have concluded that this is about larger dimensions, but it is my skepticism. I have skeptical questions about the abductions, for example, not whether they happen, but what is happening in that experience goes deeper than the classical. So what I'm making a distinction, the debunker is different as I define the debunker. The debunker said, oh, it didn't happen because it can't happen. Yeah. Reality doesn't do I that. So they're the ones that end up on these talk shows with the witness who's trying to come to terms with, you know, they agree to go on a TV show and they talk about, I was abducted. Well, right there, the eyes roll. Uh, the host is skeptical. Oprah Winfrey has done her share of these kind of shows, fairly skeptical, fairly ironic, but not openly mocking. And then in the third segment of the episode, they bring in the debunker who can absolutely remind everybody it's safe to go home. Reality is secure. These things don't really happen. These people are crazy. So that's what I want to get at. That kind of debunking is not really, doesn't have a place. Genuine skepticism, you're right, man. It helps us keep our game better, keeps us, uh, ask, gets us to play a, a cleaner game and to deal with what we don't know. And by the way, I'm the first to say, as I was saying at the beginning before we went on the air, I don't know is a, is a statement I'm very willing to, to make. I don't know a lot about this. I'm a field worker. I, I compare myself, but I'm going to be very careful how I say it. I'm like Charles Darwin. He went out and he collected fossils. He said, huh, the fossils on this island are like this. The fossils on this island are like this. He began to study patterns. It led him to the remarkable theory of uh, natural selection and evolution. I don't compare myself to Darwin in that sense. I'm not comparing myself by saying I'm going to come up with world-shattering discoveries. But like Darwin, I'm curious. Yeah, there's just curiosity. So with this, there's just so many unknowns and so many variables and so many what ifs when dealing with UFOs. But truth be told, I mean, when you look at everything that is being released by the Department of Defense, by NASA, um, and by other three-letter agencies and four-letter agencies, there's so much that is being released but right now. Probably Brad told us the other night, never yeah. a straight answer. Yeah, never, never a straight answer is NASA. NASA. Uh, there's been so much released that you can't help but think that we are at a tipping point. With you, you just get that for those of us <laughs> that pay attention to this kind of stuff that are uh, conspiracy theorists. Um, we've seen this happen in the past where they'll release a whole bunch of info about something and then something will happen. You know, it's a, it's a, it's repetition, you know, that, that, smaller. Yeah, that makes us come to these conclusions that something's about to happen with UFOs because they're just releasing all of this data. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, 
there have been so many alien abduction movies and so many just UFO sighting movies. Um, and that's predictive programming on part of Hollywood, you know, to numb, us, just, down to where to when numb us down and numb our brains to this stuff. Like, Oh, whatever, you know, right. no, we look at this like, man, there's something's about to happen. Well, well you're right. You're right. That's the effect of, um, and, and this is, this is a, a phenomenon that makes it possible for debunkers. And, and by, again, the debunkers are the skeptics who don't, don't operate in good faith. Okay. Yeah, debunkers, I get what you're saying, the difference between yeah. a debunker and a skeptic. I, yeah, I so the debunkers will say, oh, well, we've had these Hollywood movies now for 40 years. So people, uh, you know, uh, there's a guy named Bud Hopkins, who for many years was a leading uh, abduction researcher. And his, his uh, cases were routinely dismissed as uh, evidence of the so-called psychosocial hypothesis, that people... Uh, sure, they have strange dreams, they have strange visions, but because we've had 40 years or 30 years of abduction themes, uh, they're just contaminated by that. Well, I would say to that, that confuses the positive. Yes, that is, that does happen. Hollywood has played a role of saturating the culture with the same images. That doesn't negate, however, the possibility of a core phenomenon that does involve real encounters and those encounters get hidden in the noise. And, the and signal and gets hidden in the noise. And a lot can be said about that, as you mentioned when we when you first came on, Mr. Thompson, that uh, this has repeated itself through history and it's it's not really a secret that uh, hieroglyphs, uh, both in Egypt and Central American cultures, the Mayans, the Aztecs, they share commonality. And you know, there's a there's a discussion of whether or not there's faith involved there. That even up until now, with the with the increase in the the media output toward these subjects, and I don't want to get too far into my own theories here because I'm crossing a ton of science fiction and Carl Sagan's pale blue dot. But um, in the, in the short of it all, that it's it's almost worth considering that in the event of these real encounters, be it that they are extraterrestrial beings or uh, supernatural from another dimension, whatever it is, it, it gives weight to the notion, are we being observed as a society in, you know, across, across the world? I think that's a great question. Are they, are they analyzing how we're developing as a society? And there's there's questions that could be that can be inferred. Are they are we developing along a like a like a pre-desired path? Are we moving in a direction that they expect us to, if for whatever comes next, as you say? Then are, are are we dangerous? Are we dangerous? Are they? I mean, if they are as technologically advanced as, as the USS Nimitz uh, aircraft carrier sightings that as you know, have, have brought the Pentagon into this full scale in the past uh, year, year and a half. If they're executing these kinds of speeds, trajectories, and then disappearances of this kind, we're dealing with something that is extraordinarily, uh, it, it's, it deals with co coordinates beyond the time and space model that we accept as real. If, they, if there's that kind of technological advance, are they also morally and spiritually 
equivalently advanced. We don't know. Sure. And are they observing us differently than, than they've observed us for centuries? Are we in some kind of ongoing relationship with, with some otherness that is in a middle zone of being able, paraphysical, as John Keel called it, the para, para, paraphysical hypothesis. So anyway, these questions are all up for grabs. They're, they're very yeah. relevant. They're Need very relevant. That's why we can't narrow this thing down. It's really here to open us up to ask better questions and to put our answers, okay, I've got, this is my hypothesis. Great. Put the hypothesis there, hold it, but don't act as if it's true. Sure. It could be true. Sure. But hold it. As, any hypothesis needs to be testable. And uh, anyway, so that's my approach. I, uh, uh, but I must tell you, I am absolutely struck by the experiential authenticity of the, of the when I say the reports, that pe the authenticity of people's firsthand reports. Uh, I mentioned the Pascagoula abduction case in 1970. I could go into a little detail on that if you want. I but mean, when I'm, you talk okay to firsthand witnesses, well, let me just tell you real briefly. I just went to Pascagoula to revisit that case. It happened 50 years ago. One of the two men involved, Calvin Parker, still alive, about 70 years old, had some health problems. I decided for my book, uh, even though the case is considered a cold case, I wanted to go down and, and get to know him and figure out how, how this is set with him. Well, so here's what happened. Here's the primary story, and I'll keep it brief. 1973, Calvin Parker, 19 years old. His co-worker, Charlie Hickson, they worked at the shipyard together. Charlie's 42, a couple of buddies, first day at work for Calvin at the shipyard. Uh, Charlie said, hey, you want to go fishing tonight? And I might slip into their southern accents because I'm talking deep south, and I just spent time with Calvin Parker, and I love the man, so I talk like him a little bit because it adds the, the authenticity. Uh, in any case, he said, sure, I'd like to go fishing. I don't have my fishing pole. He said, well, you can borrow some of mine. And he makes the joke. He said, well, you know, in the South, a man don't loan his fishing equipment easily. He might just as well loan you his wife and tell that she'll cook for you. So he's got a great sense of humor. He goes out, they're out on the pier fishing about seven o'clock at night in Pascagoula. It doesn't get much further south than Pascagoula in the United States. When it does, they call up the Gulf of Mexico. It's right there, okay? And they're out on a pier, and they're casting their light, and Calvin's already concerned that they're trespassing. They've chosen to fish in a place that's, you know, marked no trespassing. And sure enough, behind him, he sees blue lights flashing onto the water. He goes, Calvin, or he says, he says to Charlie, well, you're fixing to get us both arrested. You're going to be paying my way out of jail. The police are here. They turned around. They would have been lucky if it was the police. And there was a spacecraft that had landed. And I say spacecraft, I'm not going to say an apparent spacecraft, okay, because I don't want to keep adding it sure. appeared to be. Sure, it's sure. just I'm going to call it a spacecraft because that's what they experienced. Uh, the door opened in a way that they couldn't understand. They both were physically paralyzed. Ordinary Christian men uh, had never heard anything about UFOs. Out came three ugly creatures, Calvin called them, and they took each of them by their arms. They felt a, it, what they felt a pain in their arm. Calvin believes he got an injection 
okay, they got taken into this craft. They had examinations. This had not been heard of yet. The abductions, there had only been one major abduction in the United States, Betty and Barney Hill in the Northeastern state. That's a whole separate one. It was not widely known. They were then placed back, by the way, they were floated inside this thing in, in their experience and floated back out. Well, then they were both terrified. I mean, the level of panic in them both. Uh, they saw this thing close up, take off, it disappear as a spot. And they sat there for about 15 minutes in silence. And finally, Calvin, Charlie says to Calvin, well, the worst has happened. We got to figure out what we're going to do. We better call somebody. And, and Calvin, Calvin Parker said, we're not calling nobody, Charlie. There's nobody going to know about this. What we're going to do is go to work tomorrow morning. Nobody's ever going to know about this. Well, sure. they decided, Charlie, the older one, felt, look, this could be an invasion. We have an obligation to warn. Calvin said, we don't have an obligation. You know, he didn't want this thing. To, I'm, I'm emphasizing that. He did not want this to be known. He knew where this would take him in his life. Sure. He knew Pascagoula, okay? Sure. Wouldn't be friendly. Wasn't Northern California New Age stuff going on here? So they, got, they went to the sheriff's office. Sheriff interviewed them privately and tried to break down their story. Then the sheriff, a smart guy, put them in a room together with a hidden tape recorder and shut the door and said, you guys, be, we're going to process you and send you home soon. You just have a moment to relax. The sheriff assumed if they were creating a hoax, they would admit it on the tape. Wouldn't that be a good assumption? They'd say something like, well, we got them going good, Charlie. Let's keep it going. We'll, make a, we'll get a Hollywood movie out of this, blah, blah, blah. Instead, I could, I'm going to print the transcript in my book. Sure. These men were broken down. They were terrified. Calvin said, I can't hardly breathe. I thought I died. I need some nerve medication. I got to see a doctor. I, I never, and, and the same with Calvin, the older, Charlie, the older one. And the, the sheriff came back in, took the tape recorder. They didn't know what it was. Sheriff went to listen to it. Sheriff said, these men have had a real experience. I don't know what they've experienced. They've had a real experience. So I went down to see Calvin Parker 50 years later. Here's an interesting thing. This is, the, this is where I want to kind of just take this, and then I'll put it back to you guys. Yeah. 45 years later, I should say. Calvin, they handled it a little differently. Charlie decided he was going to continue to talk about the story. He didn't make any money off it. Sure. But Calvin was the older one. He'd been in the Korean War. He'd seen trauma. He was traumatized by this, but he talked about it a lot. Calvin had a different thing. He didn't want to talk to anybody about it. It didn't suit him well at all. Uh, in fact, let me tell you a story, maybe hard to believe. He married the woman, the woman who became his wife, he married two weeks after this abduction because they had planned to get married. For 45 years after they got married, he never told his wife the story. All she knew was what she had read in the papers. And almost hard to believe, she said, when my husband is ready to tell me, he will tell me. 
He lived with his wife for 45 years with never telling this story. So here's a funny little detail. Here's how this human thing works out. About 45 years afterwards, they went to a funeral for a neighbor and a friend. He had learned to take on, he'd taken on an, a, a, an anonymous name over the years. His friends knew him as Randy. He was so interested in not being known for this that he created a new name. His wife knew he was Calvin, but otherwise people thought his name was Randy. So he signs the funeral register with his real name, Calvin Parker. He let it slip. He forgot. So people said, well, you're Calvin Parker. Why, you had the abduction. Why, we want to talk. We want to hear your story. And Calvin looked at his wife and said, we can't stay here. This isn't right. This is a funeral. Uh, this isn't respectable. So they walked out. And, and here was the moment of truth. I think this is made for Hollywood at this point. They get in the car. Her name is Wileen. And, and she says, Calvin, you've got to write a book. You can't keep hiding this thing. <clears throat> and he said, you know, you're right. And it turned out they had just had two weeks earlier, somebody had written Calvin, a publisher, said, are you willing, finally, are you ready to tell your story? We'll publish it exactly in your... He'd been resisting. He didn't want to publish a story. He finally realized the only way he was going to get through this was to finally put it down on paper. So he told his story. Now, the reason I want to bring it to this, he wrote a book called Pascagoula, the closest encounter, firsthand, first person, Southern accent, Southern dialect, as real as it gets. And other witnesses who saw the same craft the same night came out of the woodwork. When he had a reading at a bookstore, he had people come out and say, I seen that thing that night. I seen them creatures land over there where you were. So the moral of the story is, because Calvin Parker took the story and submerged it. People didn't know how to find him. They didn't know where he was. And by the way, most of the other witnesses had said, well, we see what happened to these two good old boys when they went public, so we're not going to tell either. But when Calvin finally allowed the story to surface 45 years later and tell it, other people came out of the woodwork. They joined it, and he wrote a second book, including the secondary witnesses. So it goes to show how absolutely problematic these experiences are. People do not want the, I can tell you that one sign of authenticity is people do not want to go public with these experiences. The idea that most abductees, whatever that experience really is, the idea that the average person who's had what's called an abduction wants to be public about it is a falsehood. Sure. Most of them have not done well in their lives ever since because there's nothing quite like the feeling of being kidnapped and taken into a saucer. Again, I don't know how many levels these experiences are happening at. Right. I don't know that they're literally happening at the same level that you and I are. I think they're, talk, they're happening in a larger set of dimensions that are real but more real than real. Yeah. And, then, and then the phenomenon <clears throat> disappears and drops you back in your normal life, and you're left with the decision, well, shall I go public about it? Like Whitley Strieber, the famous writer who wrote a book called Communion. Well, he, he wrote a book, 
And he'll be the first to say that he paid a professional price because he was a professional writer and it did not do well uh, in his career, to say the least. So anyway, this is the kind of stuff that keeps me interested. Yeah. It keeps me interested at a, at a human level. Uh, mostly what I did with Calvin Parker was we had red, red uh, beans and rice. <laughs> I sat on his porch. He, he picked up his, I'll never forget, he picks up his cell phone at one point, And he says, put on Otis Redding. And he was talking to Alexa or Siri. And sure enough, Otis Redding comes on. He says, I sure look, I sure love listening to the blues. <laughs> it's like old country. It's all, it's all story. Nice. It's all story. So he's come out in a good place. After living in terror and not telling anybody, he told his wife, he wrote a book. He helped other people come forward and tell their experience. If I can tell you, if, the, if these are aliens and they're paying attention, I think they're probably proud that Calvin Parker has done something, has done whatever they said. Now, this is a man who handled it well. There you go. Speaking of that, uh, hold on. My echo. Hold on. Oh, I can hear you. Um, yeah. There's been uh, that they just released. I think I mentioned this before. Uh, that no, no less <clears throat> than four alien species are watching Earth right now from inside our galaxy. No less than four. That's who who is the source of that? And I'm not. I'm not being hard no, asking. I'm pretty sure it was NASA. I'm pretty sure it was NASA said that no less than four alien species are watching us at any given moment within our own galaxy. Well, I'll, I'll give you an, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a sort of another take. And I've talked with CIA and again, I say other not to contradict, but let me put another story to the side of it. Uh, I talk with former CIA uh, and when I say former CIA, this guy did not, it, he did not work at the anomalies desk. He didn't work on the aliens desk. There is no such really place called the alien desk. But he was interested in the phenomenon because he himself had had experiences in his own life, sure. in addition to being a CIA case officer doing just normal patriotic CIA work. So he has told me, he said, Keith, the evidence I have based on a lot of insiders in the government is what we're not being told is they don't know what to make of this. They know something is going on. The sources he has say what they are hiding is that they don't know. The government, now again, there's other evidence to the contrary. There are rumors of crash saucers. There are rumors of military contractors holding the crash saucer. So again, and of course, what happened at Roswell? That's a very interesting case. Let's just agree. That's an interesting case. In any event, uh, this CIA officer I know says, Keith, what is really being hidden is that this phenomenon is so much vaster. I mean, can you imagine? When is the military going to have the following news conference? We have been tracking the UFO phenomenon now for 70 years. We're convinced something is in our airspace with impunity, comes and goes on its own terms. We can't begin to explain what it is. 
uh, it shows no hostile intentions, but we're analyzing the threat potential. We'll keep you posted. That would be no, they're, they're, they're not going to do that. No. So they can't say, no. they can't say that they don't know. Now, I'm not saying that there might not be forces in the government who actually are more knowledgeable. Oh, I'm simply God. saying there are some who don't think that, who, who believe that they, what, what's known is that they don't know and <coughs> can't explain it. And incidentally enough, the, 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 the major increase in the number of uh, supposed observations of possible UFOs, whatever they are, the increase in the 20th century immediately following the Second World War. And I hate to make everything or make some connection back to to military history, but military is almost always a driver of technology. Right. And there's. There is so much to be said about a lot of our early World War II research that just it, it, it would almost provide the indication like with the Air Force finally releasing or officially acknowledging the existence of Area 51. Right. I mean, give me a uh, break. Look at it, the technology that was used in the SR-71 Blackbird and the U-2 spy plane, that was in the 60s and 70s. Look at, I mean, look at that. Yeah. The F-117 stealth fighter from the late 80s, that stuff is in, so advanced. At that, imagine what they've got now, you yeah. know? We made such a leap forward, technologically speaking, in the 20th century. And I mean, yes, I understand we're on the on the heels of of oil production, of steel production and early combustible engines. But the leap between 19, the, the early 1910s all the way up through 1957, 1958, when NASA is it, it it's astronomical. And then after NASA gets funding, it's increasing at a geometric rate. Right. All well, the way and, through the space race. Well, and, and, and I would tell you something, in addition to the possibility that some of what is being observed around Area 51 is our own, our yeah. own technology, and that's a very strong possibility. Um, it is also the case that in World War II, the Foo Fighters, F-O-O -O yeah. Fighters, before the rock yeah. band took that name, there were balls of light, just as you say, seen mm -hmm. off the wings of American airplanes, German airplanes, Japanese airplanes. Each nation's air force thought it was the technology of the other. Sure. And, they, and it turns out they were all monitoring some kind of a phenomenon that was probably what we call, well, they were UFOs. They were unidentified flying objects. Whether they were extraterrestrial, whether they're from other dimensions, is there another, you know, either way, Jacques Vallée, you know, the great French uh, UFO researcher. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, I'll just briefly tell you who he was. In Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you remember the French scientist, Lacombe, the guy who figured out that it was the hand signals that were related to the sound. Do, 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 do. Well, yeah. that French character in Close Encounters was based on a real-life character named Jacques Vallée, a French astrophysicist and computer specialist who has been studying the UFO phenomenon for a long time. Um, Valet has, has argued that there is really no way, there's no way in terms of the data to distinguish the difference between UFOs that would come from other dimensions versus UFOs that would come from other planets. 
Now, the different, I mean, in other words, in terms of the sightings that are made, uh, if there are recovered saucers, that would be a sign of something very solid and very physical. What's interesting about the crashed saucer stuff, which I'm going to deal with to some extent, is it never really resolves beyond so-and-so talk with so-and-so who talk with another so-and-so, and it turns out that the crash saucers are being held by the aeronautical corporations in private interest. So in other words, it continues to be rumors of rumors. Uh, for example, Roswell, something clearly crashed. Something clearly was of interest to the... Uh, Air Force to, to collect all the pieces. I know two cases can be made. I know the case for that being an extraterrestrial craft can be made very compellingly. I also know the evidence can be made, the case can be made that that was something of our own or Russian that was very eager to be covered up. I know that two cases can be made. It'd be an interesting uh, it'd be an interesting media production to have the two cases lined up. So this is where the phenomenon always stops short. We, there's a level of clear empirical certainty we never get. As a friend of mine, Jeff Kripal at Rice University says, the UFO subverts everything. It undercuts every theory. That may be a little strong, but there's a way the trickster element of the UFO consistently conceals itself precisely in the way that it reveals itself. If you know, if you, if you get what I mean. It's almost built-in deniability for anyone. It's built-in deniability. It's, it's like the signal. It's hard to determine what is the signal in the noise. Yep. Uh, and, and that's what makes it makes it I believe that's what makes it part of what it knowingly is doing the I believe for, for example where I where you have to enter in another here's another data let's take a whole other stream of data you're familiar with the TV show Skinwalker Ranch I assume well Skinwalker Ranch is a very strange place I haven't been there I tried to get an invitation I've got to tell you gentlemen I've actually decided if I get one I'm not going to go because it is a pretty dark scenario, some of the stuff that has happened there. It appears to be the dark side of the force. I don't know how familiar you are with the, um, but people have gotten hurt. These orbs, in some cases, are um, injurious. In any case, the, uh, the Skinwalker Ranch is an example of a hot spot, which for some reason appears to be a paranormal Disneyland with craft-like saucers, uh, bipedal, seven-foot-tall wolf figures right out of, of ancient mythology, uh, orbs of light, you name it, uh, poltergeist phenomena. So there is a paranormal dimension of this. It may be entirely paranormal. And again, I, you know, this is, this is, yeah, all it's, all spe it's all speculation, but that's what's great about things like this is you can kind of speculate about all this kind of stuff and bounce it off of other people's heads. And I think I think this is a great way, like, you know, even with you out here still, you know, working on your current book and such, you you can bounce ideas off of the things we've all said here tonight. And it may even give you a greater perspective. I was I was curious if you had, you know, since you do do a lot of research into these kind of things, you 
what is you know do you know of things like operation blue beam and stuff which i guess would be a government you know sided kind of thing where the government would fake an alien invasion and such like that and then you know we've got you know there's just bits and pieces everywhere where i see the government using this i guess as as per maybe a means of control but at the same time like i think there's enough proof out there to believe that there really is you know another you know other races and stuff of like aliens or whatever you'd like to call them i had another fellow on here recently that me and bandit have had on before and you know he he flat you know from his perspective he's like you know yes there's definitely other races of you know beings on on this planet in this planet outside of this planet and stuff that well that they I mean, do a good job of keeping covered up and you know i i I like to believe that i think there's a lot of things in this world that can be left unquestioned you know that are very questionable whether it be ghosts whether it be aliens whether it be sasquatch whether it be the Loch Ness monster hell um, um i know neptune down close to where you live you know we ought to make this a thing to go check out i think but here in the state of georgia there is our own Loch Ness monster in one of the rivers out here and i think that would be something to go check out for myself you know to go look around and see and we've also got the the georgia guidestones down here you know these are all like weird interesting questionable things and and you know like there's there's stuff like that all around you and i think that people should look at it in a larger aspect kind of like you're doing you're you 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 realize that a lot of these other things tie back into almost the same thing and 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 maybe it all has a lot to do with the same thing or maybe it has you know maybe there is just some mass psychosis and we're all just back cuckoo low you know what i'm saying i i but i i I, I like some of the stories that you brought on here this evening. This has been, this has been a fan, you know, you, I will say you're a fantastic storyteller. Like you would do a well, good the, job the stories are there transmitting and information to other people. A good storyteller is as good as his stories and the stories are great stories. When I say stories, I don't mean that to be, and I, don't, I know you're not being dismissive either. These are yes. powerful experiences that are reported. And by the way, there's, there is a great deal of evidence. It's confirmed evidence that the military and military military intelligence i know the old joke that's an oxymoron but military intelligence has uh, has clearly involved itself in the ufo phenomenon and used it to do some uh, research let's plant some uh let's plant some false rumors and uh, let's see how they take hold they've done some very interesting studies in social psychology at the expense of a researcher named linda moulton howe in particular who is a specialist in the uh, crop not crop circles although she's done a lot of work there but the uh, cattle mutilation she's an authority on that particular angle of it and a uh, and a military agent whose name i won't even mention but who has been outed as a, a source of disinformation. He's even admitted that he planted false stories as part of his assignment to see how they would take, how they would be taken up by the UFO community. So there, I know, I, I believe that. I believe there's a lot of um, like CIA plants, I guess, if you know, if you're into like Operation Mockingbird and MK Ultra and stuff, I believe there's a lot of intentional misinformation. Like people will find some real truths in every conspiracy, but then you've got another group that kind of conspiracizes on the same thing that has complete nonsense that was intentionally put there to maybe try and discredit any of this, you know, hard thinking. I think we've seen a lot of the same thing with a lot of stuff, especially in the past couple of years, you know, where the media and 
people that are in charge are out here giving us one story and the rest of us are living an entirely different story. So, well, you know, let me just briefly give you another story. I don't know him personally. and I don't think I probably will be getting to know him. He's fairly reclusive at this point, but that would be Bob Lazar uh, of Las Vegas, who. Uh, Area 52 guy. Yeah, Area 52. Uh, he makes a convincing case that he did work at Area 52, a section called S4. S is in Stephen. I believe it's S4. I could be wrong about that. Long story short, he, he makes a convincing case he did have a job there and that he was involved in the back, en back engineering of spacecraft. Let's say that's true. I'm not here to say it's not true. I'm, but I'm going to point to some angles of how this phenomenon hides itself. He also said he got a master's degree from MIT. Okay. The critics said, would you please present your dissertation? He said, no, that's private, okay? Who did you study with? Long story short, there is no evidence. He, he was not able to produce evidence. And what, he's, what he has claimed is, again, I'm going to try to be as neutral as I can on this. He has said, uh, I studied, I got, a, uh, I got my PhD there. Excuse me, maybe it's only a master's degree. Excuse me, I believe it's a master's degree thesis. Uh, and the government, because of what I came out, they erased my entire history at MIT. Well, okay, MIT has come out to say, look, we don't like to get involved in these things, but we do not have any kind of relationship with the government where they are allowed to come in and erase students' histories. We have never heard of Bob Lazar. Now, what's my point? Just on the basis, is it not possible? It is possible that Bob Lazar told the truth is telling the truth about what he, that he was involved in back engineering. Let's say that's true. It's also true. Have none of us ever told a lie? Did any of you gentlemen never tell a lie to a woman in order to have a good time on a Saturday night? Okay. Well, so Bob Lazar, I, you know, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here. Bob Lazar could have actually lied about his master's degree. He could also have been telling the truth about something. We are not all one thing or another. In any event, maybe it's true the master's degree was erased by the government. There's some other stuff that got erased by the government. Sure. Look, if it's what Bob Lazar said, he was a threat. Maybe they erased his history. This comes down to being another case that we're not going to get closure on. There are some strong elements of it. Bob Lazar might be telling the truth about what he did for a living. Maybe he's also telling the truth about the educational experience. Maybe he lied about that. You see? So if you can, now in a court of law, as you know, as we just saw in the Johnny Depp uh, divorce case or the defamation case, um, the uh, judge will tell the jury, if we find that a witness has lied on any one thing, you are authorized to disbelieve everything they've said. Sure. So on that standard, Let's say Bob Lazar did fake his education story. On that basis, you have a right to impeach his entire story, if it were a court of law. But this is a court of public opinion. So I don't know about Bob Lazar. Do any of you know enough about the case to have any opinion? I, I, you know, I mean, I, he was, he was, you know, he's definitely, I guess, somebody if you're if you're in like the alien world you come you come across a lot but i've i've come across things you know that kind of discredit him too like in and i guess it you never know it's it's really depends on the 
on the situation. Some of the things he spoke about seem very legit. Some of the things he spoke about seem very, you know, three letter agency or four letter agency. It's, it's, it, it is, it is a competing trend. I think it's, you know, still more of that kind of thing. Like I was talking about And I'm sure, I'm sure bandit, you know, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. A lot of that kind of like almost military type double speak that you I've heard you talk about a few times and stuff like that, where like, they just out here, saying it one way and they really mean it of course another way i guess it may not even military but even i say this like with like governments and stuff like that and you're not going to come right out and and like when you when guys like that if if bob lazar says who he really is you're really i mean you're going to come out to the public with that info but you're not going to come out to the public with that info you you know you know what i mean right you're gonna come out and say it but you're not gonna come out and say exactly you know the one thing lazar did get right and i'll leave everything else off the table yeah is in his description of the supposed propulsion system that drove this aircraft um was what is now on the periodic table and wasn't when he did his interview and wrote his book about it. Was you know Yeah, you it's on the it's on the periodic table now. Yeah, enough. No, that's that's a good example. That's the, the look, so that's, it's one thing I would give him credit for that maybe he wasn't completely just full of crap. Well, and, he, and or nor was he completely honest. There might be some players he wasn't right. honest. You know, I, right. I often I noticed the debate about that. Here's what I find interesting: the discourse, if you will, the discourse about Bob Lazar. If you go into Lazar world with his uh, advocates, okay, he's got a defense team, if you will, in sure. the public at large, and they'll say things like, "I believe Bob. I believe Bob." Well, my view is. That's a little bit like if you if I don't want to go too far afield here. Remember two years ago when the Me Too movement got started? Believe all women? Mm-hmm. Well, how about how about believe evidence rather than believe all women? Because uh, you know, there are women who aren't believable. There are men who aren't believable. So it isn't maybe that Bob should be believed, but the evidence that Bob presents should be evaluated. I'm look, I haven't gone deep. I'm I'll put it this way. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole in the book to try to definitively right. uh, clarify the Bob Lazar story. To the extent that I'm going to deal with it, it will be to demonstrate that it is a rabbit hole. Absolutely. That it will not yield a clear picture. And if, in that sense, I will make it serve my hypothesis that yet again, the same as in Roswell, I believe the deeper you go in Roswell, the more conflicting parallel stories you get. Not about whether something didn't crash and that the military was obsessed with collecting every piece from the desert floor. Look, that's true. But what they collected and why they wanted to is probably never going to be known because I don't think there's a colder case. All the primary witnesses are dead. Nobody, I'll tell you this, I've tried to track down who has any of the material before So I, I got I, I got something kind of funny with Roswell. My my grandfather actually told me stories of building um, infrared uh, uh, infrared what, runway system that could you know you could land the plane without actually having visuals. It was all 
like under the ground and stuff. And this was something that he said that he worked on, you know, as just a private or whatever, just in the military working on putting this kind of stuff in the ground. Cause it was, you know, they needed labor for doing it or whatever. He was just out there digging holes and stuff like that. But he's, it's always something that he, he used to talk about. And, you know, part of me was just like, yeah, this is just some crazy old man telling me a story. But then I look back and, and think about kind of some of this stuff and look at like the technology of infrared you know visuals and stuff like that because these are these are real things that are used and i'm just like this is completely plausible so you know i mean in a sense it can make you think that there is definitely some technology out there that even bob lazar you know made mention of you know and i'm not trying to defend him because he's you you know you make some good points and i try to make this point about anybody even myself that you know don't don't take take it for a hundred percent get out there and dig yourself like dig out there and make your own perception your own view and you know i've come to the conclusion that there is something else or someone else or something beyond our realm of maybe capable thinking that even the government is using or other beings are using and such like that. And maybe humanity is not ready. I mean, look how bad they fought over toilet paper two years ago, like a bunch of spoiled children. And I mean, I I don't think some of them could take it and maybe it'd be a good thing if they just decided to show up. I, I, for one would, wish they would just get it over with. And, you know, if they are going to show themselves, actually just go ahead and show themselves. And at, at the same time, I'm just like, y'all have had plenty of opportunity for many of years and still haven't seen anything. So, you know, I mean, like it, it's, it's, it's have a, noticed, it's a 50, 50 scenario. I have, a th- I have a theory on area 51 in general Yeah. though. And, you know, any top secret R and D Casey knows this as well as anyone else. They denied it for that long. If they're just now willing to come out and acknowledge its existence, whatever research was important to them there is no longer there. Sure. Sure. Who's to say it was there in the first place? Agreed. Yeah. Who's to say it was there in the first place? That's a very fair assessment. There's you know, another that could just be a calling card or whatever, just an area that they were trying to make you look while they were doing this over here. Yeah. There's another case, if you will, another figure on the public scene I find uh, real interesting. And, and that last year, and that is that is Louis Elizondo. Yeah. You're probably familiar with Lou Elizondo. He's big. He's done a lot of a lot of podcasts now. Uh, real briefly, he was the head of the of the undisclosed, now disclosed branch of the uh, DOD that was studying uh, these cases, the UFOs. So anyway, he came forward when he couldn't get the uh, attention of the Secretary of Defense. He resigned his position and gone public. He's still under, he's still under wraps. He can't, he's got a NDA, non-disclosure agreement. He's got to be very careful about. Sure. What I'm struck by is the dilemma that he faces. Uh, I, I've been really interested. He does a lot of podcasts. And so the question is, Lou, here would be, here'd be a, a standard Lou Elizondo question. By the way, I find him credible. I find him probably a real, the real deal. I think he's yeah. a patriot. He comes out of the counterintelligence world. He was involved in interrogation of the 9-11 people. He's got a long career, and uh, he did not ask for the UFO assignment. I can tell you that. In any case, he'll be on a podcast, and someone will say, Lou, do we have crash saucers? And Lou will smile and he'll say, you know, John, if the host's name is John, that's a very good question. 
and I'm going to have to take a hard pass. So I'm, I, I've noticed that I find it quite interesting, not in any way that questions his credibility, but the dilemma he faces. He does a lot of podcasts, and 80% of the time, he's not allowed to address the issue, or when he does, he'll make a very provocative statement like sure. one of the ones he's uh, gone on record. He'll say to the host, he goes, look, this phenomenon, UFOs could be from outer space, it could be from inner space, or from some space in between. And then he drops that. That's well, that's exactly the kind of stuff that is raw meat for what I'm writing about. Because that reinforces, there he's able to say, it could be outer space or inner space or some space in between. I'm not going to go on record, but no, I will not answer your question about the crash saucers because that's going to get me in trouble. And he's very honest. He'll say, look, I've got kids who want to, I want them to go to college. I got tuition to pay. If I lose my non, if I violate my non-discrimination, my non-disclosure agreement, I will be in serious trouble. I will be in federal prison. So again, uh, I just find it interesting that he's talking as much as he is. I, and by the way, he's recently backed, backed out. He says, I'm going to stop doing these interviews because there's just so much I can't say. I'm right. tired of telling you what I can't say. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, <clears throat> I, think, I think this evening has been just absolutely fantastic you know it's, it's, it's run 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 a little longer than normal but I, I i appreciate you coming out here and you know just just giving us all this great information I, I i've enjoyed your your conversation i love listening to other people's perspective um that's something here on unconstitutional awakening is kind of a running theme is is just listening to what others have to hear and stuff like that and i do i do like to go around before i close out for the evening to the rest of my group and see if they've got any questions or anything like that or anything they'd like to make a, a closing statement on bandit I got nothing. Neptune? All good. Fantastic. And Keith, you know, you've, you've been, you know, a fan, a fantastic guest this evening. And of course, if you guys want to find more of him, you can check out his website, which you guys know I'll share the links to and stuff like that. And, you know, get, get his book. It's out there on Amazon. There's copies of it, at, you know, out there for you to check out if you'd like to read his book and such. And he's going to be releasing another book. You know, again, you said you're trying to get it out by fall of next year. Is that yeah, what the, you're after? The, book, that, the new book will be out in the fall of next year. Fantastic. Uh, the former book, Angel, and I say old book, Angels and Aliens, is available only as a used book. I don't make any money from it anymore. It's an out-of-print book. Yeah. You can find it on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, so you can, you know, bet you pay sometimes 40 bucks for it, which I wish it weren't that expensive. But um, hopefully someday it'll be worth $400. It'll be a collector's item. <laughs> there you go. No, <laughs> but in any case, my website is Thompson at large, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N at large, A-T-L-A-R-G-E.com. I'm available by email. Anybody who just wants to be in touch. And, and I want to close with one thought. I have tended to downplay the ET hypothesis only because that's the predominant hypothesis. Right. So I've, I've just tried to make a case for the interdimensional as the other primary, other primary hypothesis, okay? That it's, uh, but I'm, I'm, I, I would be misunderstood if anybody comes away from this saying, Thompson tried to debunk the ET hypothesis. No, I'm just saying the phenomenon is so versatile and so wild, it can dress up in all kinds of outfits. It can pretend, right. if you will, it can pass from other dimensions and it can pass from other star systems. 
And oh, that is the genius of the phenomena. And it might be, or at least some of them might be from outer space. They might have arrived in real craft. Maybe the craft had been recovered. And by the way, that would be the good equivalent of the White House, you know, landing on the White If somebody can come forward, by the way, if somebody is in, still in the government and wants to risk going to jail, they could come forward and be a whistleblower. Sure. You know, they could probably, uh, you know, someone like Elon Musk would probably pay their legal fees <laughs> because they would be bringing forward some very deep truth. I, you know, I don't know. But having a piece of bona fide crash saucer, wow. If there, yeah. if there is anything like that that exists, I think whoever said it uh, uh, was right. We are seemingly on a verge of a, a cusp of a, of a new level of disclosure. I don't know what form it will take, and I don't know what the disclosure will be or what form. But sure. I think if I have any optimism for my own career as a writer, I think I'm doing the right book at the right time. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and I actually, you know, I, actually, I look, look forward to it. I look forward to, you know, you know maybe, maybe talking to you again in the future after you get that book out there and stuff. And maybe because you, know, you seems like you got a lot more to deal with it. And I think that's fantastic. And I, I hope you keep up the work with it. And well, like I said, y'all, I'll make sure that everybody out there can find that website because I make sure I link it where everybody watches us over there on Odyssey, Brighton, BitChute and uh, Rumble and where everybody listens to us, you know, podcast wide course you guys i need to make sure you get out there and you check out our sponsors and such you know get over there and check out the kirk elliott phd forward slash jim bob forward slash and get yourself some gold especially you know you don't know where the economy's going make sure you get over there and check out peachy key creations get yourself some soaps and some teas and you know she's a she's a spiritual healer and she's a uh you know uh reiki master and such and she'll get you hooked on up there and make sure you get over there on unconstitutionalawakening.com and get yourself some unconstitutional awakening merch and such like that and don't forget to get out there and search for that book, Angels and Aliens by, you know, Keith Thompson. And y'all get out there and give it all a chance and stuff like that. And keep thinking about aliens and, you know, questioning everything, whether it be government, aliens, just even everything in your everyday life. And I appreciate everybody that's joined me this evening. And I look forward to doing this again. Y'all have a fantastic evening. We'll talk to you soon. Good night. Good night.